Peace and blessings. You're not locked in with the baddest chaplain on the globe, Chris B. First and foremost, I want to thank you so much for subscribing to us on YouTube on baddestchaplain.substack.com, Spotify, Apple, any and everywhere that you get podcasts. Our guest today is Brian Butler. Brian is president of the Answers in the Room Educational Consulting, BKB LLC, and host of A Conversation with Brian podcast. Brian is an education consultant who has worked with thousands of schools throughout the United States, Australia, and Canada. He's a retired principal who also has experience as a physical education teacher, school counselor, and assistant principal. Brian has a deep understanding of school community dynamics and successful models. Under his leadership as principal of Mason Crest Elementary School in Annandale, Virginia, he received the first annual DeFour Award in 2016. This is an honor named for professional learning communities at work and its process architect, Richard DeFour. And it credits high-performing PLCs that demonstrate exceptional levels of student achievement and is the highest award that a PLC at work school can earn. While Brian was principal of Mount Eagle Elementary in Alexandria, Mount Eagle was recognized as a model PLC at work school. Brian was named a finalist for Fairfax County Public School Principal of the Year for demonstrating superior leadership qualities and creating an exceptional educational environment. His latest book is out now. Every student deserves a gifted education. Five shifts to nurturing each student's unique strengths, passions, and talents. Without further ado, Brian, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hey, Chris. I'm excited to be here. You know what? When you uh, read all that stuff about me, all it says is that I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it says. It just says I stuck with it for a long time, and um, I was fortunate enough to to you know work with a lot of great pe people. But you know after 35 plus years. Um, Come on. I'm just old. <laughs> That's it. But but it, it's funny you say it that way, but you think about when you first get into teaching, you don't imagine you're going to do all that stuff. Like, like you know, what what for you, what was your mindset? Like, you you, you know, you, you finish a, a successful career, both uh, as a college basketball player and playing internationally, right? And then now you're going into teaching. What was your mindset? Like, what were you thinking? Like, oh, this is what I want to do? Or where, where were you? You know, good question. It wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I got my undergrad degree in communications, uh, yeah. communications, but I did a lot with um, interning um, at Channel Five, and I wanted mm -hmm. to do radio. My brother Paul helped me do some radio, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, on the on the Eastern Shore a little bit, um, but I, I really did not think about education. You know, my dad was a an educator; he was a principal, mm -hmm. and I, I, I think you know, you know, for me. I wanted to run as far away from that as possible, right? I get it. I wanted to, you know, kind of mark, make my own mark. Um, and I didn't want to, you know, follow in my dad's footsteps. But lo and behold, I came back from from playing basketball in England. And I was just substitute teaching, trying to, you know, pay the bills and, right. and look for a job in radio and television. And one of the things that, you know, happened is uh, a, a principal while I was substitute teaching said, you know what, have you ever thought about this? And I was sub subbing in a PE class, a phys ed class. And I said, no, no, mm. I, I was not interested, but I was still subbing. One day she came back and she says, we, she said, we have a long-term sub uh, position, a phys ed position. Would you be interested? And of course I would said yes, because I wanted the money. I needed the money. I understand. But I, I found that I, I really fell in love with working with students, working with young people. Mm -hmm. And kind of the rest is history. I went back to, to school and got a teaching certification in, in physical education, eventually got my master's in counseling and then my um, certification in educational administration. But, you know, when I look back at it, 
there's no way. But I always, you know, kind of feel, and I think you probably feel this way too. You know, there, there's always something that happens that points you into a direction that you're supposed to be in. Right, right. And so it could be a person, it could be something divine, it could be some, anything. But there, there's always this point where you're like not sure are you, of what you're going to do, but something happens. Yeah. Somebody just says, you know, I believe in you, or this is, you know, something that I think you should, you could do. Mm -hmm. And that person really just kind of, kind of sparked an interest. And really, I just felt like this is what I want to do. So I went back to school. I, I sub, I long-term subbed at that, that school for a while, mm -hmm. but you know, I just went back to school and, and kind of the rest is history, but I've, I've had a, a re remarkable career just in, you know, people talk about education and, and you hear, Oh, you know, it's such a tough job. And, you know, you know, I, 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 uh, I could never do that. And I'm not saying it's not hard work and it's not a tough job and it's not grueling, right. but I don't think there's anything more rewarding than to help people, help young people, um, give them the tools to kind of craft and chart their own destiny. Yeah. And so I think, you know, for me, it's just been a great ride. I love that. I love that perspective on it. Yeah. Crafting their own destiny. And, and that really lends itself to, to, you know, our conversation talking about gifted, um, this whole idea of like children being gifted and, and the sort of like exclusive way that we've thought about gifted education, yeah. um, you know, where, where it says like some are gifted, but not all are gifted. Yeah. But tell me about how your perspective on gifted education has evolved throughout the years. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, when I became a phys ed teacher and I just started my career, I didn't think much about it because I was in a district that did that, you know, although they identify students with um, in, in certain areas as, as gifted, um, they didn't separate kids. Um, mm -hmm. And so my first 15 years, I really didn't think much about it. What I what I did kind of think about was that some kids were gifted and some kids weren't. Um, I, I always had this angst, like, you know, who gets to say that? Right, 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 right. But in my book, I write about this. I write about how I, I kind of just fell in line. Um, my first year or two, one of the veteran teachers said, you only, you know, Brian, only 3% of the kids are gifted. And so I started to spout the same thing. It's, it's interesting, Chris, in education, how we, we hear things and then we just start to spout it ourselves without right. even fact-checking. Yeah, yeah. There's something that I talk about in my book. It's called the reiteration effect. And what it is, is this phenomenon that, you know, we we will hear something and then when it's said enough by enough people, it becomes kind of this myth, this false truth. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot in education. No so what I found out, you know, later on in my career when I switched districts and I started to you know learn about um, some other researchers was that back in the late 1960s, uh, when the U.S. was competing with Russia for dominance in the space race, mm -hmm. they, the U.S. said, we need to identify, you know, kids to who we can call gifted. Um, but we're only going to spend 3% of our budget um, towards that effect. Mm -hmm. So people misunderstood that by saying, oh, then 3% of kids must be gifted. Come on. Do. There was never any study that said we're going to we, we've identified three percent of the population that was gifted. There's right. that study that, that they did. But it became like this myth and, and, and it got repeated so often that that's what's been in our lexicon. So everybody that I ever came in contact with until really recently and in the last 10 or 15 years, 
Um, and most people still will, will spout that. Right. They would say, you know, 3% of the population was gifted. The other piece to, you know, this sorting and selecting and ranking of, of kids kind of came in the, the late 60s and early 70s when um, schools were really integrating, especially in, 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 the, um, in urban centers. Sure. Um, and what was happening was there was a huge white flight of middle class families right. trying to move out of the cities. And to combat that, the districts, the, the regions were creating these special programs mm -hmm. to hold on to those families who were leaving. Um, and so they would create these programs and they would um, uh, administer different tests, mm -hmm. portfolios for, for um, kids to get into those programs. And basically, they were a gatekeeper to un underrepresented groups. Wow, wow, wow. Um, black students. Um, uh, Hispanic students, students, any group from poverty, right? Poor white students, poor black, poor, poor, poor brown, um, and but this this situation kind of took hold, and parents loved it. The parents who got into those programs mm -hmm. loved it, and it became like their own private school within the public school, right? And it and it, it lasts today. I mean, and unfortunately, people really think that this idea that certain kids got it and certain kids don't. Um, allows for these programs to to, to stay in place, mm -hmm. and we know by with all the research that's gone on from Carol Dweck to Carol right. Thompson. Carol Dweck wrote the book Mindset. Yes, Eric Jensen. There are so many researchers that talk about um, in the right conditions, any kid can can rise to the level of you know performing as if they were gifted. Mm -hmm. um, and so my my passion, my kind of focus has been helping educators understand that this is possible. We lived it at my, my former school um, and we were able to, to do it with, in, in, with certain conditions. Mm -hmm. I think what, and, and we'll, we'll get into this. I know you have some other questions, but I think okay. what happens is we, we lay everything on the backs of an individual teacher and it's, it's impossible for an individual teacher to meet the needs of every single child in his or her class. Right. It's got to be a team approach. It's got to be an approach where we, we, we rely on the, uh, the, the, the people, the experts in our building, mm -hmm. on, our, on our team. Um, and, and if we do that, then we have a chance to make sure that we are giving our best to every single student. No doubt about it. You know, what you're saying, it makes me think about just the ways in which, you know, just in, in, in my experience in the classroom, I've seen how children really respond to sort of the energy that's given oh, yeah. um, to them by the instructors, right? Yeah. Like, I, I remember when, when I was teaching high school, I had so many kids who would say, I don't respect them, talking about the teacher. Like, I don't right. respect that teacher because they don't respect me. Yeah. And, you know, the teacher never, in some rare cases, they, they actually explicitly said they don't respect them, but yeah. it wasn't something that was explicitly necessarily communicated, but it just was the energy. You can tell, yeah. people have sense, they can tell when they're being respected or cared for in a room. And, and, and it makes me think a lot about what you've written, um, where, where you assert that our assumptions drive our actions. Yeah. So so I really want, um, if, if you will, for you to share with us ways that we can interrupt our own biases, particularly think about the educators and, and the decision makers in the educational space. How do we interrupt these biases and redirect our assumptions into more constructive actions that create that atmosphere that you're talking about that kids sure. need to thrive? 
So let's walk through my book, because if you, if you walk through my book, the, the parts of my book, and I talk about the five shifts to nurture each student's um, unique strengths, passion, and, and passions and talents, I think it really captures how we can do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, when I, you know, I talk in my book, I, I talk about some strategies um, and some practices. They're not exhaustive. I mean, there's mm. there's other that, others that you can use. But in my experience, in the work that I've done, these have been the most effective to support that notion that every kid, that we can find um, every kid's strengths and passions and gifts. Yeah. But I think the first thing is, is to, to be open. And, and I, I talk about this idea of the floor, and it's an acronym um, for those five shifts. The first acronym, first is F, mm. fallacy of the fixed intelligence. We have to, mm -hmm. as a profession, really read and learn about the evidence and the research about the brain. We don't do that. You know, right. when you go to in colleges and in these teacher prep programs, if they do anything about, you know, the science of learning is very minimal. Mm -hmm. And so if we can actually dispel this myth that people are some people are born smart and some people aren't, we're just born. Right. We, we get smarter with the our, our experiences, um, uh, you know, through the 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 activities that are afforded us the opportunities that are afforded us you know your kids from you know from the age of birth to now they've had a lot of opportunities and experiences right. you know think about the same kids or, or a different group of kids who were born on the same day come on may not have had the same experiences opportunities to do the things that your kids have had right when they get to school they may seem behind they're no less intelligent than your children. Right, right. Don't have all the the language, the experiences, the opportunities to to find some of the things that they were passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think us learning about the brain, learning about the parts of the brain, how um, the, the chemicals of the brain work, how we can actually in our classrooms really um, support some of the hap what we call the happy chemicals. Yes. Help, help um, you know, students want to continue to learn. Uh, and also the the idea of this, you know, I talked about her earlier, the idea of the growth mindset. When we mm -hmm. talk about Carol Dweck's work of persisting and bouncing yes. back when, when when things don't go right, being open to, to criticism. Um, and, and so when we start to teach students about this idea that they can get smarter, right. that their brain is malleable, um, and, and, and the more that they persist, Failure is actually not a bad thing. It's a, it's actually a part of the learning process. Right. We teach kids these things, and and we teach ourselves. Then we can help kids, you know, open that oyster and say the mm -hmm. the world is their oyster. Yeah, yeah. And and then the other piece is, and I really think this is important, is that we we as the educators have to change our mindsets. Mm -hmm. if, if we have a mindset, for example. If I'm a, a teacher and I'm saying I wasn't a math person, I wasn't good at math. How are you going to teach kids to learn math? Come on. You're saying I'm not a math person. Right, right. right? Excuse me. You have okay. to acknowledge that you have a fixed mindset and you have to figure out how I can change my mindset to a growth mindset in order for me to help my myself. Yeah. And then help my kids. Uh, you know, I always think about the, the idea of being in an airplane and when the flight attendant is saying, you know, if the oxygen comes down, who do you help first? Come you on, you got to help yourself. Right? And so our teachers have to help ourselves first. We have to change our mindsets. We have to put the tools in our toolkit. And then 
we begin to have that competence mm-hmm. that develops confidence, right. allows us to have those beliefs and expectations for kids to be able to do whatever they want. Yeah. Um, with this idea of giftedness, um, and again, my, my approach to giftedness is really just different. Um, I say that all kids have gifts. It, do all kids have the same gifts? No. Are kids gifted in everything? No, that's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying that there are there are are kids who's just have not their their unlimited potential has just not been tapped. Yeah. For for whatever reason, and I hear what you're saying. Like some people, some of the kids say, you know, the the teacher doesn't like me or the teacher doesn't connect with me. Right. One of those pieces is because the teacher doesn't know them. Come you know. On. When we talk about, you know, cultural competence and, yes, and, yes. and, and we talk about, you know, this idea of relevancy, mm-hmm. so when you're teaching a lesson, how is this relevant to me? I, I actually kind of followed you and I remember you, you were teaching some lessons and you were doing some rap or something like that. Yeah. That connects to people, some of those kids' lives because they're, they're coming from situations where that is important to them. No doubt. So, so you're using rap to actually pull them into the content. Mm-hmm. Are we doing those things with, with all the different content areas? Are we sharing, you know, during our math lessons, uh, people who look like me, right. Come from my culture or my background who are, or mathematicians or scientists or, or historians or artists. are we doing those things? And a lot of times we're not. No. And I think that's so important when we are hoping to make some connections with mm-hmm. students is one, are we actually understanding their lived experience? Right. And again, this is not to lower expectations. Mm-mm. It's to bring context to what we're going, what we're trying to do in terms of their learning. Mm-hmm. And so if I know that you're coming from this background, then one, I can actually speak to it. I can make a connection with you. I can ask you. A lot of times our, our students are the experts yeah. in their neighborhoods. Of course. In in video games, in, in, in music. And so let's give them voice. Let's help center their perspectives, which really allows them to connect. And that's an important piece when we talk about um, oxytocin and dopamine, those yeah. in the brain. Oxytocin is huge when it comes to relationships and connecting mm. with, with adults. And so mm. are we actually you know, helping kids release some of those happy chemicals right. to, to really help them be more engaged in their learning. The other piece is we have to be realistic in terms of some of the situations that our kids come from. Come on. And knowing that the, 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 the chemical um, that, that is truly um a chemical that allows that that prevents them from learning mm-hmm. um really teachers need to know about what that chemical is yeah. and 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 help them under help understand that when a kid is coming from a situation like let's say they're coming from a morning where they they're stressed right um and they've had something happen at home it's going to take them, you know, an hour, an hour and a half to kind of regulate. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so that cortisol, which I was, I went blank for a second, that cortisol, the chemical, the chemical cortisol, if it's not regulated, then then they're going to have t- trouble, you know, focusing. Right. They're going to have trouble remembering. And those those 
actions sometimes look like the kid can't learn. And that's right. not the case. It's no. because those that stress, that cortisol is being released. And when they're in constant state of fight or flight, come on, that cortisol is flooding their brain. Right. And it's tough for them to, to learn. And so we have to know what kind of things we can do, like making sure that we have constant movement breaks in our classroom. There we go. Sure that we, we can do some meditation. We, there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that we can do that allows kids to really um, co-regulate. Yes. Um, but what you were talking about early, it starts with relationships. It starts with Absolutely. connection. And if we don't connect with kids, then it's, we're, they're just not going to really buy in and, yeah. and own their learning. No doubt about it. Yeah. You know, you, you said so many things that reminded me of, I had the, the um, privilege while I was back in Brooklyn uh, to visit my old high school where I taught um, for four years. And one of my colleagues there, a good friend, she's a math teacher and she has, you know, the school's predominantly black and Hispanic. And so sure. you have a bunch of uh, like Ellen Ochoa and Benjamin Banneker and all these like um, historic figures who accomplished what they accomplished through their um, mastery of mathematics. Yeah. And they look like the students in the classroom. Yeah. And just thinking about the, the, the um, power of that. You, you, know, you talked about me using um, hip hop when I was an English teacher. Uh, a, a funny story, I had a, a student who, I taught him in English, but I also was doing an elective that year called Hip Hop ELA. Sure. And he, he, came, he come and it was like ninth period. So it's like technically after school, it's like an extra period on the day. Yeah. And he comes in, he's like, Mr. Burton, I want you to know I cut class today. I cut school today, but I had to come to see this. And I was like, I'm honored, but also you need to come to school. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, but you connected with them, and that's important. And so, again, that first um, shift is really us making sure that we help kids learn about the brain mm -hmm. and that we help you know them learn about the growth mindset. The second shift is, and this is per pernicious in our in yeah. our in our culture. And it's not, I don't think it's something that, and, and again, when I say these things, I say them because I've done them wrong. Like, I get like you. throughout my career, I've made mistakes and, and we've all, so I, I, I'm owning this. Right, right. The, the, the other pieces, the, the second chapter is called labels be gone. Come on. We label kids, the labels that we give to kids, that's what drives our expectations, right? No doubt. So, you know, when we call kids low, yes. even when we're using the, the term minority, this, this, um, come on, this, where is she? Um, Yvette Jackson, who's right behind me, she wrote yeah. this book, um, a Pedagogy of Confidence. She used to be the director of gifted services for New York City. Okay. Um, African American, um, lady, and, and she talked about, um, the use of these marginalizing labels. Yeah, yeah. And she said, you know, minority. She said, we should not be calling our kids minorities. We should not be calling our, ourselves minorities because she says, what does minority connotate? Less than. Less. We're not right. less than. Right? No. She's like, uh, so, and she says, we should not be calling kids, um, you know, kids from poverty. She says, right. And use the school, school dependent students mm -hmm. because those students depend on school. What your kids and my kids get at home. Right, 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 right. So right. we should be giving those experiences, you know, those those learning experiences to kids in school mm -hmm. because they don't get those opportunities at home. No doubt. Right. And so the 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 labels that we use, um and, and in, in my book I um I have this quote and it's like the labels that we use, um something like um create the house that we live in. 
Right. Seriously. So, so when we're using these labels, it really seeps into educators' minds. Mm-hmm. You say low kid or or they're slow or or or, or whatever or, or right. special ed kid. Right. Come on. We lower our expectations. And what we have to do is get those out of our, our conversation. Even even when we talk about saying a kid is smart. Carol Dweck in her in yes. her research said you should never tell a kid is kid they're smart because um in the research that she did, she did two different groups. They they had a group of kids who they told they were really smart and they gave them some problems. And the other group they 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 gave some problems and they just um they just praised their effort. Um mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. when the kids started to not do so well in this area, the kids when they told them they were smart. Those kids either said, you know, next time we're going to cheat or wow. we're just going to stop. Because when you're told that you're smart, you that's a fixed mindset. You yeah. say that you're here. And, and so they're saying, we're just not going to even try because we don't want to kind of be outed. Yeah, right, right. We want to think we're, yeah, we're, we're smart. Wow. The people who they said, the kids that they praise their effort. They were so focused on improving and improving and improving. Even when it was challenging, even when they weren't successful, they got this this mindset where we're going to continue to work hard um, until we're successful. And so this idea of praising effort instead of praising intelligence is Mm -hmm. really important. For kids, and I have to be honest, I, I I wasn't, I didn't know that until you know the the early two thousands. Sure. Told her, I mean, read her her book, um, and so I I think you know any label that marginalizes a kid and that makes them feel like one less than or two, if I'm if I don't live up to this label, then I'm going to be less than. Mm-hmm. And we have to start looking at how do we start to kind of l- limit some of these labels from from our um, from our vocabulary. Um, even even to the point of, and I talk about it. This is in my book as well. Giving kids nicknames. We have a you know in my former former school we had thirty six um, birth countries and forty three languages, and Come so we had, we had kids who are coming from all over the world, and, and right. we had kids whose names were were hard to pronounce. Sure, sure. We need to pronounce them. Yeah, we do. Because when we give them a nickname or we start to just give them the first letter of their name. That is central to a kid's identity. Oh, come on! What you're telling a kid when you're giving, asking them, can they, you give them a nickname or you pronounce their name in a different way? That they're not as important. You're That's otherizing it. them. No these question. Are just, these are just little things, Chris, that we can do in our schools mm-hmm. that allows us. Excuse me, that can allow us to build those kind of relationships. Yeah. So that's chapter two. You can ask another question because I was going to. I'm going to roll through my book, but. Go go through it, and we can we can still touch on the rest of the book. I'm with you. I'm with you because you know you made me you made me think about the ways. Um, and you talked about this a, a bit about how we hold children to low expectations. But what can we as educators do to disabuse ourselves? Pardon me of this unfortunate practice because it really it feels so much. Um, it makes me think so much about um my own work with like implicit bias and teaching people mm-hmm. how to interrupt implicit bias. Yeah. So from your vantage point, like how do we interrupt and disabuse ourselves of this unfortunate practice of being like, oh, they can't learn. I've heard so many yeah. educators say they can't learn, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I think there's there's a couple things and there's a book behind me. Um it's called Ruthless Equity and this guy named Kim yeah. a friend of mine. He he talks about, you know, we we are so 
pie in the sky in terms of equity and, and, and people are using it and, and misunderstanding it. Equity is right in your classroom. For example, if I'm a teacher and I'm teaching, I have, I have standards. And when we talk about high expectations, one, we have to define high expectations. Right. High expectations to me is grade level or better. Okay. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to allow any kid in my class who um, I expect to be an independent adult one day to leave that class without having access to grade level or better um, curriculum. Yeah. Right. And so what happens is we have kids or, or educators who say, and, and they call it, you know, um, they're, they are, you know, they're loving the kid. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't love a kid into high expectations if you believe that they can't learn. Come on. Right. And so what we're saying is if you go into my classroom or our team, let's say, you know, Chris and, and Brian and Brianna and Allison are, are teammates. Mm-hmm. We're on the same. We're, we're a teacher team and we have 100 students on, on our team. We as a team say, OK, out of our entire curriculum, we know that they might not master the entire curriculum because the curriculum is vast and, and it's just a lot of stuff to cover. But what we will say is that there are certain things that are so essential in this curriculum that there is no kid who's going to leave this year without mastering those essential grade level content, essential grade level content. And we as a, that, this foursome as a team are going to make sure that we work together. They're not going to be your kids and my kids. They're all of our kids. We're right. going to work together, together and identify the most essential curriculum. We are going to unpack that curriculum to make sure that we as us four uh-huh. are crystal clear on the understanding of those standards and those targets within that curriculum. We are going to make sure that we, as a four foursome, create assessments around those essentials. And then we're going to come back. We're going to teach the best way we know how. I'm not, we're not trying to teach a proof. We're going to say, you know, I'm going to go and use my strategies. Chris, use your strategies. Brianna, Allison, use your strategies. Right. The best you know how. But then we're going to give that assessment that we all created together around those essentials. We're going to come back together and then we're going to look at that data because Mm -hmm. what we're going to do is say, okay, we said these are all of our kids and we said that they have to master these essentials. They might not master everything else, but these essentials, if they master these, then that's the minimum. They're going to have a chance to be successful in the next course or grade level. Gotcha. And so Chris, the students that Chris worked with, they got 95% on this, this, these essential skills. Yeah. The students that Allison and, and Brianna worked with got 95% as well. Right. The students that Brian worked with got 65%. Now, mm. hear me now. Mm. This isn't about ranking teachers. It's right. not about sorting teachers. It's not about evaluating teachers. This is about, okay, we said we're trying to improve our practices. So if Chris and Brianna and Allison's, the students that they were working with, got 95%, on the agreed upon essential standards that they as a team said are so important. Mm-hmm. What do you think Brian should be doing when, when at that table? Should Brian be saying, oh, I, I'm a terrible teacher. I, I'm, right. I'm, 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 I don't want to share my data. No, Brian should be saying, Chris, Allison, Brianna, can you walk me through your lessons? Come on. Can you put more tools in my toolkit. Can I come and observe you? Can you come and teach the class so I, I actually can, you know, see what you're doing? Because we we said these are our kids. Right. We're, we're trying to get them all across the finish line. 
So that's the first thing is, is, is putting more tools in my toolkit. Mm-hmm. The second thing is we need to be willing to share kids. If we're at the same grade level, if these are all of our kids, right? it's just like the medical model. It's like, okay, I am, he, Chris has the antidote. So maybe during this intervention block, I send the students who weren't successful to Chris. Chris sends me the students who were successful and I can teach them extensions. Yeah. This is how we start to, to talk about equity. Equity mm-hmm. is not just mm-hmm. high in the sky. Right. Equity is right in our classroom. And and so if, if I teach, if, but if I say that kid is too low and I don't give him or her access to grade level essential curriculum, and Chris, a- answer this for me. Okay. If I teach a kid below grade level all day, every day, every week, every month, all year long, where are they going to end up at the end of the year? Below grade level. Below grade level. But that's yeah. what we do. Right. We pull kids out and say they're too low to, to do it. Yeah. And so we pull them out and give them below grade level curriculum all right. day, and they never catch up. No. Now, am I saying that we don't fill in gaps? No. Yeah, I, I, I am saying, yeah, we fill in the gaps that they might be missing, mm-hmm. and we give them access to grade level curriculum. It's not either or. Right. They'll never catch up. And that's what's happened to us. And that's why we have such a gap is because our schools have never been set up to operate like professional learning communities, the yeah. true professional learning communities where we actually are sharing practices and that we are creating schedules that intervene for kids who ha- might have some gaps, but we also make sure that they don't get pulled out when it's time for them to have access to those essential grade level skills, because mm-hmm. that's how we close a gap. Absolutely. That's equity. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's brilliantly said. Brilliantly said. I, I, I'm curious, how would you say, because I often think about the ways in which life will, will hand us certain like trials or difficulties. And yeah. when we handle them well, they give us they 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 fill our wells of empathy that allow us to now say I know how to address this problem. So someone who has to deal with this deficit in one area, they're like, sure. because I know what that's like. Now I know how to create um um an abundance in another area. So with that being said, like how has your experience as a student informed your pedagogy? Like like what about your journey as a student informs the work that you're doing now? I think my my journey. I think it goes back even further. My journey just in my family um, gives me a passion because in my in the book as well, I I write born in the right family. And it's not a judgment because I I believe that every single parent loves their kids. They we just love in different ways. And some of us have, some mm-hmm. of us have resources to provide. But I, I, I say that because I had struggles early on when I was in primary grades and I struggled to learn how to read. Um, but my dad was a reading teacher and my mom yeah. was you know, very supportive in the education realm as, as well. And there was always a focus on education um, and them giving me a lot of background knowledge. And so um, I was able to catch up pretty quickly. I know that mm-hmm. they, they wanted to retain me, not my parents. The teacher wanted to retain me early on. And my parents said no, um, because we got this. But yeah. what I'm saying is I was lucky. It should not take for a kid to be born in the right family for them to have what my friend Mike Maddows calls a life filled with endless possibilities and opportunities. Mm-hmm. So we as that's where my passion is. It's like okay, we are the the educators. You know, I, I did a a, a um, session about three weeks ago 
with some educators in Arkansas. And I, I asked, you know, how many years have you all been in the profession? And people raised their hand. And I added up all those years, Chris, and it was 1,233 years of experience. Goodness. In- <laughs> think about that. If right. there's that much experience in that room, yeah. what can't we figure out for kids? Seriously. 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 What can we not figure out for kids? If we work together and we, you know, we get rid of our egos, that part. Our, our system has been set up for us to be, you know, one room schoolhouses or, you know, I'm the, the king or queen of my castle. Right, right. Rid of that. And we have to really say, OK, is the, the answer is in the room or the room is the answer. Uh-huh. And we have to share our knowledge, our skills, our experiences, our expertise and say, we're going to make this work for every single child. Does it work every day perfectly? No. Right. You know, if it comes to us far behind or they come to us with you know certain deficits, it's going to take time. But we can get there. Yeah. Um, we just have to be persistent. We have to make sure that we believe right. that we can get there. Um, at the beginning of most of my, my talks, I asked this question. Do we believe that it's our moral obligation to treat other people's children, meaning people, the, the kids that are coming into our school, uh-huh. have the same expectations of those kids as we would for our own kids or our loved one's kid, our niece or nephew or grandparent? Sure. Our grandchild. I've never had any educator say no. Mm. So if that's the case, what would you do for your own child? Right. You would run through the wall. You would no run into a, a burning, you would run into a burning building. No question. Do anything. So if you're telling me, educators, that you that that we are truly in loco parentis, that that's what we are about, then and that these are truly our kids then we should be willing to do anything. But yeah. we, tradi- we traditionally have not done that. You know, we as a profession, and I love educators. I think we, we deeply care for kids. I think mm-hmm. we want the best for kids. But we've been put into a system that hasn't been designed to educate all kids. Right. And people say the system's broken. The system's doing what it was supposed to uh, do. Designed. It, what it was designed to do. Right. So my thing is we need to create our own system Come on. that allows for this work to be done for all kids. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's where um, sometimes we have to have a little bit more courage. Sure. Um, I, and again, I'm saying this because I wasn't always that person. Get you. Sometimes I would just go along to get along. But then right, right. Point, when I became an administrator, I'm like, these are I'm responsible for all these people. Or we are together. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to make sure that they have the lives that they that I would want for Allison and Emily. No um, doubt about it. And so, so that part when I talked about that teamwork, um, that that's that is really chapter three. It's mm-hmm. called the ob- obligation of teams. It's, it's about collective teacher efficacy, um, this collaborative culture. And if if we can create that that collaborative culture, um, working on the right work, mm-hmm. then we, excuse me, we can make this happen. Have you ever heard of John Hattie? Um, no, I haven't. I have not. But John Hattie um, has. He's done the most exhaustive um, study, uh, synthesis of educational research in the history of the world. Come on. Um, his, and I think it's his, he is, and I, I'm trying to look at my, I want to make sure I have it. He has synthesized over 130,000 studies, over 400 million students. And his uh, research is called Visible Learning. And he looks at 250 influences and factors that affect student achievement. Okay. Um, he ranks them. Yeah, right? yeah. And he he said that, and, and so what he what he looked at is, um, you know, 
things that are inside of school, things mm-hmm. that are outside of school that sure. affect student achievement. Pretty much anything, of, you know, is positive mm-hmm. um, in terms of student achievement. It, 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 kids can grow by being in a, a teacher's classroom. Actually, in his study, kids, kids grow 0.10 standard deviations just by being alive. They learn something. <laughs> in here, they just learn something just by observing the, the you know, like, their, their environment. Just existing, yeah. Yeah. But what he said is, in his study, he said, in in the average teacher's classroom, um, in one year, kids grow point four, point four zero standard deviations. And I'm not going to get too deep, but just think about sure. this, point four zero. So in his, his study, he said the number one um, thing on his list was this idea of collective teacher efficacy. He said if teachers work in such a way where they share their practices, they're transparent, they're vulnerable, they, they share their, their failures, they share their success with each other. He said that you can get a kid to grow 1.52. That's four times Whoa. of an individual teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can close that gap because what he's saying is you're, you're, you're actually, you can, clo- you, can, you can accelerate learning two, three, four years in one year. Come on. And that's what we did. In my old school, we would close like we would have kids growing two, three reading years in one year. But you have to do the right work. You have to make sure that you're not pulling them out. You're not labeling them. You're working in such a way where you're identifying essential skills that all kids must master. But we don't do that. Right. In one teacher's classroom, that one teacher might do something like that or mm-hmm. do that. But then it's an educational lottery. What about the other three teachers? Come on. We have to make sure that we are sharing our practices and our our, our wisdom and skills with each other to make sure there is no educational lottery. So that's chapter three. Um, Chapter four is this idea of those seven strategies. I'm not going to go through all seven strategies that that, um, I talk about with teachers, but I I say there are seven seven, um, strategies and I call them superpowers. Yeah. And one of the, the strategies that I will talk about is starting with strengths. How many teachers, no matter who the kid is, you start with, what are their strengths? Yeah. That, that doesn't normally happen. Right. We, we might have some, some they, they, we get their folder from the pre- previous Come year. On. And we see, oh, some have strengths. Oh, these kids are, they, they have all these deficits or they right. can't do this. We start with can't do's. Of course. And so when we start with can't do's, think about what goes into our head. This right. kid can't do. Can't this kid do. has a history of can't doing. Right. Well, if you if it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, no, the kid no, can right. feel it, and so the kid says, "I can't do anything. What am I good at?" Come on, so what we're saying is start with strengths. Start the year with strengths. You know, don't look at that folder from last year yet. Come on, right? And and have some time with your kids, build some relationships, so you can see what this kid is good at, uh, or tough. what they might be interested in. Right. And so, um, one of my one of my seven superpowers for for students for teachers is starting with strengths because that's yes. really that's really important there's some others in terms of um relationships um making sure that we give them opportunities to be a part of traditional gifted uh, experiences mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like um uh um the the um socratic seminar yes, um, yes. document-based questioning um, experiential learning, all right. the things that some of the kids in quote gifted land get, we want to make sure that all kids get those. Sure. 
some people will say, well, these students aren't ready for a Socratic seminar. And we say, well, they are if we work in the right way. That's it. For, for example, if I have some English learners or if I have some students who um, have a, you know, a special ed designation or they, they need special ed education services, then the special ed teachers at the table with the, with the grade level teachers, mm. the EL teachers at the table. And that those teachers are sharing their strategies to make sure that these kids can access Socratic seminar. No doubt. They might need some front front loading on the vocabulary. Right. Um, some of the students who might have um, behavior challenges might need to have some um, academic discourse modeled for them. Right. And so we have to predict what they need in order to access what traditionally has only been for kids with the gifted label. Yeah. Uh, and so we're not going to just throw kids in think, sink or swim, no. but we are going to say they have access, they, they have the right to have access to these higher level thinking um, experiences, just like any kid. Of course. Um, and that's why we, we got to get rid of, you know, a lot of these labels. And I'm not saying that some of the labels aren't necessary because they, they, they drive some of the funding. Sure. But, but in terms of, the actual work we do in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Labels are not helping us at yeah. all. And, and and we're seeing the label and we're not seeing the child. And that's a big problem. Exactly, yeah. And one of my friends, uh, Sarah Shul, she said, stop barcoding kids. Come we're on. Like right? And yeah. so you, and then that automatically, that's what you think. Because, you know, just like you, me, anybody, we we have certain strengths. We have certain things that, that we need support with. Of course. Kid by kid, skill by skill, that right. we have to drill down and say, okay, this kid is not good at two by two addition. This kid is not not strong at two by two addition. This student has a special ed label. This student does not. Wouldn't it be good to put them together and give them support? But no, we separate kids based right. on the label instead of based on the skill. Exactly. And you saying that makes me think about like. You know, when I was a special education teacher and we had the ICT, which is like the inclusive classroom uh, mm -hmm. uh, style of it, it, it made me think about at its best, it should create the environment that you're talking about where students are able to trade each other's strengths. Sure. But too often, because of that deficit lens, you saw yeah. people worry about, oh, the top kids in the class are going to coast. And, yeah. gonna, and, and the bottom kids are going to bring everyone down. Like it was just never viewed as like a, a an opportunity for everyone to thrive. You know? Exactly. And so, and I think you said it perfectly. And I think one of the things we have is when we say the top kids and the bottom kids, what are we measuring? Right. Are we just measuring academics, because that, that leads us into my next session when I talk about fostering these essential attributes for, for students. So like, you know, we might have a kid who may struggle in some, some areas um, of academics, but may persist in the arts. Oh yeah, music or in phys ed. Do we know his strengths in that area or her Come strengths? Yeah. And so, in my former school, when we would get our teams together, we would talk about each student, and we would start with, okay, what are their strengths? Have we actually? And, and we would have like a Google Drive where it went to all the teachers, and we would say phys ed, art, music, or whatever they're special. Yeah, yeah. List their strengths. Yes. Because a lot of times classroom teachers, if a student wasn't doing well academically, That's then it. it's, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like they okay. lower the expectations. But when they see that they're doing well in those other areas, Come on. Then that, that should give them a, some pause to say, oh, I might need to learn from right. the art teacher or the music teacher oh, or the yes. teacher. What are, what are they doing or how, to build relationships? What are they doing to, to keep these kids engaged? 
um, it takes an entire school no to really figure out how we can make sure that all kids are, are being successful. The other thing, one of the other attributes is, um, you know, precise thinking and communication, mm-hmm. self-control, empathy, um, curiosity, yeah. uh, optimism. These attributes are the attributes that are going to make and help kids be successful. Right. Not asking a test. When I ask or anybody, you know, ask an employer uh, or prospective employer, you know, what do you want for your your employees coming in? Yeah. These are the skills that they want. They're not asking me that they pass the state test. No. And I'm not <laughs> saying that it's not important because, you know, we have to, you know, it's not either or, but these are the most important skills. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think so teaching students those superpowers, those mm. attributes, behaviors, skills, um, attitudes, uh, I really think will help them become successful and the state tests and the other things are going to take care of themselves because we're giving them the the self-efficacy, the belief, no the doubt. expectations in themselves that that they can do anything that they put their minds to. That's it. That's entirely it. Yeah, I, I think about the amount of kids I had who were in the uh, special education program who were amazing at the arts or amazing yeah. At, yeah. At, at kinesthetic learning. There's so many different ways that exactly. we prioritize because even as we were describing it, Earlier, I was thinking it also requires a sort of like um, a a, a flattened hierarchy in terms of what classes are important in the school. Because we know that we don't value the arts programs and physical education as much as we value like science and even the humanities, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So when I'm talking about gifted education, it's so... We didn't talk before this, but it's like a segue into my final chapter. My final chapter is um, entitled R, resistance, but also inspiration. So resistance is how do we help people who resist this new approach, my approach? Mm -hmm. How are we going to help them get on board? And so the idea of uh, Anthony Muhammad and Louise Cruz. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wrote this book called Time for Change. And Anthony Muhammad wrote a book called Transforming School Culture. And when he's what, what they say is resistance is not bad. It's not about ba- good or bad. It's not you know good versus evil. It's mm-hmm. it's productive versus unproductive organizational behavior. Makes sense, right? And then, but they also say there are reasons why people resist. There are logical reasons why people resist. Right. Which you and I know that education has this pendulum, and we have all these initiatives oh, and people. And, 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 or if somebody's had four or five principals in six years, right, right. <laughs> resist because one they don't trust the leader exactly because they're like you're going to be here for a year or and you're going to be gone um so people resist when they don't trust the leadership right people also resist when they don't know why they don't have evidence they haven't been able to sit down and study the research and so we have to get people together to build shared knowledge to learn together about the, the latest research and evidence so we can say okay let's stop debating opinion let's stop making decisions based on who's been here the longest or who's got the loudest voice let's make decisions based on reading this evidence together and then coming to conclusion to a conclusion based on that evidence and so that's you know that's a logical reason why people resist because they don't know why the other reason why people resist change is because we we have all these initiatives but we don't give people the proper time, mm-hmm. training, support to do what we're asking them to do. Right. So if, if I am a, a elementary school teacher and we have this new reading program and and some people know it and some people don't, but you're saying we need to implement it right away. Right. And I'm like, 
but we haven't had the training. We haven't had the time and the support to be able to do. I'm going to mm. resist. Those are logical reasons why people resist. For sure. And, and the leaders have to know, because these are logical readers, leader, logical reasons why people resist, yeah. then I have to I have to support their need. I have to support their why. Come on. I have to support their trust as a leader. One of the things that we said is we were the lead mistake makers. We're going to be transparent. Mm. We're, going to, we're going to disperse leadership. We don't know everything. We know that the teachers are the experts, so we're going to let you all lead a lot of this stuff. Right, right. But you have to get rid of your ego as one as a leader at some point. Come on. And say, we are a team, and I'm going to build trust in that way. Now, if we do those three things, if we articulate the why and we and we use we read the research we build trust and we're transparent and we give people the proper time training and support those are logical reasons if we oh, do yeah. all those things and people still don't do it and say we're, we're going to resist then that's illogical a hundred percent and so um then we have to say as the leaders you're going to do it because this is your professional responsibility Come on and we have to move forward. We can't wait for you. No, no, no. See, what happens is, and so those three, these are four tools. The first three are great tools. Mm -hmm. The fourth tool is a hammer. You have to Shit. do it. Yeah, yeah, But what happens is many leaders start with the hammer. Of course. And then people just say, okay, I'll do it. But I'm just going to comply. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not going to commit to this. I don't believe yeah. in it, but I'll, I'll do it because right. you tell me to. You don't want people just to comply, no. but. Again, if you do these first three and then there's a few people who still say no, then yep. you have to How say no. Right. But you do the first three, most people will get on board. For most sure. people are reasonable. Yeah. But we haven't done that. There, there are so many systematic things that we can do. And that's from Anthony Muhammad's work and, and uh. Louis' work in terms of resistance. And so the last piece is when we talk, and you talked about this, there are other disciplines that kids can or can you know thrive in, the arts right. and music and whatever. Um, so the last piece is uh, finding inspiration in the success of others. Yeah. And I highlight four school districts and I highlight four individuals who are, are very successful. And, and they all talk about how they were successful because of all the support they've gotten. Right. One guy, his name was Andrew Mallon. And Andrew said that he was he could he had a hard time learning how to read. He said he's an adult. And he still needs assistance with reading. Come on. But when he he, he loved um, carpentry and his parents built him a carpentry studio in his in their house come on like in, their, in their garage um he got to high school and he wanted to take the upper level carpentry class and the high school said no and his parents advocated his parents said okay right they went to the they, they said if you don't let him take this he loves carpentry this is the only only thing keeping Passion. him in school they and they said if you don't let him take this he's going to drop out of school hmm Fast forward, they find the high school finally relented and yeah. let him that carpentry carpentry class, and he stayed in school. He became a carpenter, um, but now he's a world class tree sculptor. He's one Come of the on. top five tree sculptors in the world. Whoa! And, and and so that's his passion. Yeah, carpentry. And so, like you said, we have to flatten it. We have we. Have, I, I I don't like white collar, blue collar. No. Every every occupation is honorable, and it's and whoever's doing that is an expert. Yeah, right. And so that's that's again when I talk about you know gifted education for all, mm -hmm. it's giving kids these attributes, making sure that that the teachers have these strategies, but allowing kids to find their 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 way, find yes. their passion, find their strengths.
That is really it. No, that's extraordinary. That's really extraordinary. I, I want to ask you, what would you say is your hope for the world in this moment? Like thinking about education, thinking about, you know, you know, this is clearly your life's work. You've poured so much um, into, into, you know, so, so many different educators around the world. What would you say is your hope for the world in this particular moment? You know, there's a, there's a lot of big big hopes and little hopes. I think the the biggest hope is for peace. Yeah, I think the 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 way we get there. I don't I don't have the answer to that, but sure. I think you know through education. Yeah, through allowing you know kids and people to um, obtain knowledge and diff from different sources um, allows us to think critically. Yeah, and to really start to think about you know how we want to contribute to this world. Um, my, my hope is that, that we start to realize that we are much more alike, that we start with our, 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 what we're, what we have in common Yes. than, you know, our differences, because mm -hmm. as, as, you know, we, we try to do, um, in our schools is that we try to, to help people understand the, the basic conditions of true humanity that we are alike in many ways because once we know that we are alike in many ways then we truly actually can have a conversation about differences for sure a lot of times we start with differences right and it's hard to get to how we're alike mm -hmm. but if chris and i you know talk about the new york knicks i won't go down that road too much but <laughs> <laughs> but we talk about basketball yeah, we talk yeah. about in common that we find that we find this bond right then we can start to have a conversation that that um may be that we may not agree on right but it also gifts us yes your, your differences gift me come on and in mine gift to you because yes. now i've learned something more right um, and that's okay and i think that's so my 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 hope is that we we start to you know one conversation at a time because it is it's i i think that's where it's was what it's going to take yeah. one person at a time i love that um, kareem uh, kareem abdul jabbar is a, i'm a huge fan of his and yes. he has a he has a um a podcast but he also has a store and i brought bought two of my friends a um a shirt and on the shirt is kareem and bruce lee yes and the saying says Find a friend or a person who does not look like you and make a friend. Yeah. Find a person who has a different opinion of you opinion and make that person your friend. Yeah. That's you know, one conversation at, at a time. I think that's what's gonna do it. But you know, the the hope in the meantime is that we can at least find some humanity and, and peace and you know, st stop seeing each other as other and, and less than because that's where these wars come from and then yeah. we're, we're, you know, we're killing each other and we have to realize that we're, we're humans. Yeah. And that we're, we're, that there's no other species like us. Truly. And, and so I, that, that is my hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, don't have, I don't have the answer for the entire world, but I think one conversation at a time can at least start it. It's on the right, uh, on the right road for sure. Cause you know, as you're, as you're speaking, it made me think about, how hard it is to truly hate people who you have spent time with and yeah. learned about. You know, yeah. ignor ignorance fuels hatred. But yeah. like, if you have knowledge about a person and spend time with them, it's going to be hard to fully hate them. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, yeah. think about it. Yeah, I mean, and, and then, 
and then I think that's why people don't don't want to get to know some people precisely. They know, like I, I saw it. I heard a talk show person saying, "I don't want to get to know that person on the other side of the aisle because I think I would like him, so I don't want to know because I hate his policies." Yeah, think about that. Right. Like so, so you're going to not even have a conversation. Right. You're not even going to because you hate the person's policies, but maybe your lens into their world once you get to know them will give you an understanding of why. Doesn't mean you're going to change your no. behavior, change right. your your stance on your policies, but it's also going to give you a a, a, a lens into that person's humanity. Mm-hmm. You may know that this, you may realize this person's a great humanitarian who doesn't talk about it. Right. And right. Helps, you, you have no idea. That's really the truth. That's really the so, truth. I, I want to ask you this question that I ask every guest who comes on the show. Um, I want you to imagine that you're hosting a dinner. Yep. You can invite four guests, dead or living, fictional or real people. Brian, who are you bringing to dinner? You know, um, it's interesting you asked this. Sometimes somebody asked me this question before, Chris, and they were, they were surprised that I didn't, you know, talk about like historical figures or some famous person, mm-hmm. you know, the, the four people that I would want to have dinner with, because I, I have to be honest, I didn't, as an adult, I didn't know them because they were gone or my grandparents. Yeah. Like, I, I never met my dad's um, dad. He died before I was born. Right. My, my grandmother on my dad's side, I, I didn't see very often. I, yeah. I, mean, I, I can remember probably seeing her six times in my life. Right. Right. Um, uh, my, my mom's, we spent much more time on my mom's side. So I knew my grand, my mom's mom and dad, but my mom's mother died when I was like 12 or 13. Okay. And my, my mom's dad died when I was, um, playing basketball in Europe. So I was like 21. Right. Right. They sat and had a conversation with them. Sure. So love to sit and have a conversation with them. Not even a conversation. I would love just to sit and just hear their perspective. Yeah. 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 My my dad's think about this. My dad's dad was born in the eighteen hundreds. My goodness, think about that. Yeah, I mean, think about that was literally a stone's throw from right. Our people being enslaved. That's it. Like, so I, I would love to, and, and they all had like second, third, fourth grade educations. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they valued education. Sure. Um, and I tell a story, but I'm not going to tell it today. But they valued education so much that that my mom, my dad's parents lost their right to share crop the land because he went to college. And the, the landowner Goodness. says that if you go to college, then I'm going to kick your family off the land. Wow. So that wow. value of it. So think about well, think about well, that's why enslaved people were not allowed to learn to because learn, right. they were afraid of what was going to happen, which yeah. we know. Exactly. Um, I I would actually you know so those four people, but I would also like to know about some of our historical figures, some of our scientists, astrologers Mm -hmm. who were African before enslavement. Yes, because when we were Africans were enslaved, that's not our history. That that interrupted our history precisely. I'd like to know. And, and and I said something, I was having a conversa- conversation with my buddy, Mike Brown, the other day, and we were talking about literally how our hard drive was erased. Yes. Because for 400 years or 260 or 280 years, we weren't allowed to read. We weren't allowed to, you know, we, we our, our history was erased. Right. Our memories, generation after generation, it was, you know, 
you know, systematically erased from our memory. Right. And so I would like to know and speak to some of the people who were scientists and astrologers from Africa. And, 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 and so um, they could tell us what happened. Yeah, for sure. How, how successful they were. And so not so much the, the, you know, we hear a lot about our pain and our struggle, and that's part of our of journey. No we're, we're, so much more than, we're so much more than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, so, so I know that um, the book is out now. Uh, where, where, where do you want folks to go to, to, to um, purchase yeah, this book? Can, and if you hadn't heard it before, to, it's every... They can go to Amazon.com. They can go mm-hmm. to BarnesandNoble.com. If anybody wants a signed copy, they can go to BrianButler.info. That's my website, and they can, okay. um, you know, follow the prompts, and I, I will sign a copy and send them a copy directly. But if they want something really quickly, they can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble. But again, they can go to BrianButler.info on my website, and they can order a copy from me directly. Perfect, perfect. So we're gonna send we're gonna send folks to directly to BrianButler.info. <laughs> Amazon's yep. gonna be fine. Barnes and Noble's gonna be <laughs> yeah. fine. It's let's all send, good. Let's send them to you. Uh, right. and, and also with the with the podcast, um, a conversation with Brian. Can, where can we listen to that? Uh, it's on YouTube, Spotify. Um, I am on. I think that's that's about that's about it. There, so it's YouTube and Spotify cool. right now. Yeah, cool, cool. cool. But I, I uh I am on hiatus until January, but I've had some great guests and nice. so you're gonna need to return the favor and come on my podcast, Chris, and talk about your journey because you've had an extraordinary journey, and I really respect everything that you do and and, you. and what you've been through and and how you you know, really continue to look at the world in such a positive manner. So I'll be happy to, I'll be more than happy to, that'd be a great way to, to kick off 2024. Yeah, let's go for yeah, it. Come on. All right. Here for it, here for it. What, what you all have, have heard, uh, uh, Brian Butler's um, wonderful wise words, please go out and, and, and make sure that you purchase a copy of the book. Every student deserves a gifted education, five shifts to nurturing each student's unique strengths, passions, and talents available brianbutler.info, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and also listen to his podcast, The Conversation with Brian, available on YouTube and Spotify. And and make sure that you've uh, subscribed and liked to this podcast. You know, once again, on YouTube, it's on Spotify, we're on Substack, Apple Podcasts, any and everywhere where you're listening to podcasts. I want to thank you so much to our wonderful guest, Brian Butler. Thank you so much to you all for watching and listening. And until next time, be wonderful, be blessed, be kind, and, and be loving out here, okay? Uh, Much love. Thank you all so much and talk to you soon. Peace.